Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access, my go-to source for the best selection of interesting wines you can't find locally. Rated Best Wine Club by New York Times Wirecutter and the official partner and wine provider of the Michelin Guide. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Check it out today. Campania was one of the most famous wine regions of antiquity. The pedigree of Fiano, Greco, and Alianico are well-documented in literature of the time. Yes, including my favorite, Pliny the Elders, naturalist historius. These wines have a legacy of cultivation for more than 2,000 years on this land. And since the 1700s, the Mastro Berardino family have taken the lead in protecting and elevating the region and its wines. This family kept these ancient grapes alive when all others abandoned them and have been tireless champions of the grapes, the wines, and the region for centuries. Despite natural disasters, wars, economic fluctuations, raised eyebrows from the neighbors, the Mastro Berardino family persevered, never lost faith in the native grapes, and they led the way in reviving the wines of Erpenia, improving them. Their success encouraged others in Erpenia that they could grow native grapes and find success. Master Berardino has been called the guardian of the wine history of Campania. They are the most historically significant winery in southern Italy, and today I have with me Piero Mastro Berardino, whom I had the honor and pleasure of meeting when I was in Campania. He gave me so much of his time, but I asked him for just a little bit more so he could share his story with you. And I will preface this podcast by saying he makes one of the single best wines I have ever had, the Stilema Tarazzi. And all of the wines are absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Piero, so much for being with us today and for sharing your story. Thank you. It's my great pleasure and honor. Tell us about the history of your family from Pietro de Mastro Berardino in the 1700s to the business that your great grandfather established to when your father took over. Well, it's a long story. And well, we've got time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm currently representing the 10th generation of the family in the wine business going back uh, to the beginning of 1700s. And the first information are about this guy, Pietro, that was born in 1697, is in the census that Carlo III of Borbone family made when he arrived from Spain and started domination on the reign of Napoli, that then became the reign of the two Sicilies. And so Carlo was a great innovator, and he wanted to understand what was the potential of contribution of taxes from the population of southern Italy. So he decided to make this survey on all the activities. And so among these people living in Atripalda, where we still live today, Pietro was holding quite a good amount of land and was involved in these activities. From there, we have a period that lasts about one century in which the family, the descendants of Pietro, start investing more and more in the development of the business, mainly the property of land. And uh, this was mainly made by Michele Mastro Berardino, that is the father of my great-grandfather, who was born in 1803. In the first half of the 1800s up to 1870, this guy makes a huge effort 
in consolidating uh, the properties of the family. And one of his sons, Angelo Mastro Berardino, in this period, the family name becomes Mastro Berardino. Can you explain that? It's an interesting thing because originally the name was just Berardino, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the ascendants of this Pietro was called Berardino. In fact, in many generations in the family, we find many people that are named Berardino or Berardina. But then at some point, some notable, you know, changed the name from Mastro Berardino, separated into different words, and it became the family name. So during the late 1700s, uh, we have the, the, the change of this name in the documents, in the papers of the family. So it becomes the, the family name. And Michele Mastro Berardino then uh, has this son, Angelo, that is a kind of a pioneer that makes another relevant change in the history of the family business, because in 1870, he starts planning the opening of foreign markets. He wants to internationalize the company and to bring the wines from uh, Irpinia in other countries. So together with one of his brothers called Giuseppe, he founds a company in Rome that is a forwarder of the wines through Genoa on one side, Venice on the other. Then they start shipping the wines to Europe. In 1878, they start the export activities. Then uh, they start exploring North American market. You are, we're going to talk about you, but you are a business professor, among many other things that you do. If we think about the business structure from the time that they were doing this, no one else was doing this, especially in wine, except champagne. There were a few markets, but certainly not in southern Italy. We see none of this happening. How did they have the foresight to say, you know what? Southern Italy is not enough. We need to go out to these really quite big markets. It's a little daunting, different languages, but this is how the world works today. And we're talking about something that was 150 years ago. There are several uh, reasons that should be put on the table together. The first of all, uh, you have to consider that in Italy, we have the first flow of emigrants that is very strong towards North America in late 1800s. A second yeah. flow is at the beginning of 1900s. A third flow is in the late 20s, 30s. So we've got many Italians that are spread all over the world that are yeah. mainly in North America and Latin America then. And these are ambassadors for the products of Italy. Then we have the fact that uh, uh, in the family, mm, there is this approach to culture. All these people study a lot. They go out for studies in a period in which it's not very easy to have young people going far from home right. for a specialization. And they do it when they are 17, 18 year old. And this is very unusual. So this means that uh, this guy, this Angelo Mastro Berardino, is a pioneer not only for the business, but also for the cultural approach to the everyday life. So his sons and daughters study. The sons mainly study languages. And one of them that is older says that the younger brother has to study in Switzerland because he has to learn different languages. And this is written in, in the letters of the family. So we are talking about the period that is in late 1800s, beginning of 1900s. This is quite unusual. But uh, I think that, uh, on the other hand, it's not really unusual that this company starts doing this. I think that other companies did the same. The difference is the fact that we have a family archive, 
And we have the full story of these pioneers, but other families just quit. And uh, many of these stories are not told anymore. So I think that in the beginning of 1900s, we've got a good amount of Italian entrepreneurs trying to look for new options in the far markets of the Americas. We're talking about the 1800s. Phylloxera was an issue. But I'm confused. I didn't ask you this when I met you, but I was a little confused after my trip there. Was phylloxera bad there or not so bad there? Because some people say... It wasn't so bad because phylloxera can't live in the volcanic soils, but you have other soil types. So was it mixed? I mean, what was the situation with phylloxera? Well, first of all, phylloxera arrived much later here in Campania. Phylloxera came through France and Piedmont in Italy in that period, late 1800s, 1870s. Late 1870s, we have the destruction, a huge damage on the French vineyards. And uh, this becomes a huge opportunity for my great-grandfather. Right. Uh, so they establish a headquarters of the family in France, in Haute-Savoie. From there, they spend a huge amount of time distributing the wines in France and Belgium in that period. So this is an explosion of the activities in late 1800s of our wines in Europe. Then they open London. You know, around 1900, they got the first international awards in London and Paris, taking part to, you know, wine contests. And phylloxera, considered that we have the first damages about phylloxera in our vineyards in Campania in late 20s, some decades oh. later. And you and already the, had the grafting solution. It was already there. It was just the was money it, that you had to yes, invest in uh, it. Yes and no. I mean, uh, in a sense, uh, the opportunity of replantation, of course, was already there. But the real contribution of the research field of that time was the fact that they understood they didn't need to just explant the whole vineyard. Right, they had right. the possibility to do it in parcels. And so we didn't lose the whole production, even in the 30s, even with the bad damages of phylloxera arriving in Campania, some parts were protected, as you said, by the volcanic soils. Some others were protected by a technical approach to replantation. The problem arrives with World War II because, of course, the vineyards are suffering for phylloxera, but then in World War II, all the people go through war, and that's another issue that comes in a difficult situation. I want to talk about that in a second, but I have another question about that. So when your family was exporting these wines, was it Alianico and Fiano and Greco? Was it your native? So it was all the native grapes. You still yes. continued with that. Okay. Not, I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of that. Not only those grapes. These were the three most prestigious. We've got a huge amount of documents in our family museum that is dedicated to show the relevance of the production of Alianico and Greco and Fiano divided per each village in Irpinia. But at the time, we also had some other grape varietals that were quite relevant in the area, were produced, and some of them are not considered Campania grapes today, but in our literature, they existed at the time. Like which ones? We had uh, some Sangiovese, we had some Barbera, we had some Cabernet Franc. We yeah. had, uh, I mean... Uh, so just some other stuff. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Then at some point, uh, we have a focus on the most relevant grapes, 
And this happens after World War II in the late 50s and 60s. There is a concentration of the investments and on the efforts on the very typical grape varietals due to my father. But, but in the meantime, his grandfather, Angelo, that is my great-grandfather, who became a knight of the King of Italy in 1905 wow. due to his successes worldwide, was able to establish uh, you know, activities in many relevant countries abroad, mainly United States and Canada. And also Africa was a huge market because all the colonies, not only right. the Italian ones, but also the French, the English colonies were very important buyers for us. And then in the 20s, there is the opening of Latin American markets and of Asian markets by my grandfather, Michele. Angelo's son, that was really the turning point in the approach to the markets because he lives uh, uh, six to eight months per year abroad traveling. Wow. And uh, he, he writes every day through the letters. We've got the story of Italian wine movement and also of Italian family business and gives uh, an idea of uh, the technical approach to organization and to strategy and to production issues and so on. So it's extremely interesting to go through his writings, of course, he is really a guy that coming from technical studies uh, has a very wide approach to organization and to strategy. It is, again, so fascinating. I know you're saying, okay, you have documentation and others don't. I don't think anybody else was that widespread. I mean, if you talk to people, maybe people in Chianti, but Barolo and Barbaresco at the time were a, a lot of people in the Mezzadria system. It was a very, very difficult time, basically until like the 1990s. Montalcino was nothing until the late 1800s. I think that you're very unique in the fact that the legacy of this distribution is, is amazing. And I think that what is more amazing to me is why today these are not the most popular wines in Italy. Let's talk about your father, Antonio. I have read about him for so many years because when I discovered Fiano, which you know is like my love, I have always been just so fascinated with you and your father. Your father, he was such an important figure. So can you talk about what he went through? I cannot even imagine being alive for these wars, being around this, and then not just that, but then also the earthquake, the big one, and other earthquakes as well. He really went through a lot. You were alive for some of this also, obviously not the wars, but the earthquake you were around for. So I would just love to hear about him and how he managed to have so much faith in Campania. And it was a devastating time. First of all, let me tell you that I had uh, such a strong relationship with my father. He was uh, my best friend and Aww. probably I met him more than anyone else in his life. We had the kind of symbiosis in our lives as it was for his father, for him, with his father. Because his father in 1943, Michele, this pioneer and ambassador worldwide of Italian brand, in '43, got sick and he started losing his sight. Oh. So my father started being the eyes of Michele. He used to read him newspapers every day and to play chess with him every day. And they were right in the middle of the worst period of the war, the most damaging with the bombings of the Allied arriving, with the Germans that were damaging the area escaping. And uh, my father was only 15 years old in 1943. So he was a kid, but he was the man of the family and was in charge with the responsibilities 
of the company and of the family and of the sisters and of the, his mother as well, because the older brother, Angelo, was under the German army in the Greek campaign. So there was no possibility to, to come back from Greece up to 1944. So in the worst period of the war, my father, 15 years old, was in charge of almost everything. And uh, so probably this has been a kind of a training, <laughs> very right. unique training for him. He had the strength and the clear view of the things to do. That is right. really still now is something that is leading my choices. Even if I'm now 57 years old, I still feel such a strong presence in terms of view, intellectual contribution, cultural approach to life and to business life, that is for me a light for my present and for the future of this winery. The future of this winery is still coming from his ideas. And this is beautiful. Don't sell yourself short. You're a pretty smart guy. Um, the war ends. There's devastation everywhere. He makes this decision while everyone else is panicking. And this is not everyone else in Campania only. First of all, there's no one left in Campania. The situation is everyone has left because economics are horrible. Your family was there. He's taking care of the family. And now everything is a mess and people need money. So this is the story of Italy and France. And by the way, I love how the, we, we'll talk about this later, but you know, the press always talks about how Italy made all this bulk wine and it was terrible. Well, France was doing the same thing. So yeah, everybody was doing with some, it. With some differences. France was on the side of the winners. We right. were the losers. Yes, but you, <laughs> and, you did pick uh, the wrong side twice, which was not a great, <laughs> great move. So your father decides, here we are in this big mess and everyone is ripping up their vines and saying, okay, we, we got to make a market. We've got to have Sangiovese. We have to have whatever people want is what we're going to make, whatever we can sell. And he says, no. How was that even possible? Because uh, in his childhood, he had experienced uh, the huge success of Mastro Berardino brand that in the 30s was distributing the wines in all the continents, all over the world. Right. Even if it was a small family business from a small piece of land in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Campania, they were able to cover all the continents. They had the internal services of translation from many different languages. And so we got huge evidence of all this in our, in our museum. So he had the evidence of a, a very successful company based on viticulture, based on some typical grapes. So when uh, World War II ends in 1945, and when all the markets are down, and the economy is down, and social life is completely zero, and people don't even uh, remember whether a Greco or a Fiano or a, a Taurasi, he says uh, we have to reconstitute our base of production. We have to go back to the markets to remind the past. Right. Consider that my father was born in 1928, so in the 30s uh, he was a kid and uh, he had uh, this memory of his father, Michele, living one month per year on French Alps to manage the distribution in France and in Belgium and then in the UK. So he had um, in his uh, mind and also in his soul the strength of this memory of success of the family name. 
And so he wanted to bring the family back to that level of awareness on the market. So he starts from the replantation in the late 40s. Then during the 50s, he is completely dedicated to production, to the vineyards and to the cellar. While his older brother, back from the war, is taking care of uh, the reopening of some international markets. Angelo is in charge of the reopening of London market in the 50s. And then uh, North American markets, Angelo made this uh, before my father, while my father was rebuilding the base of production in Irpinia. And then uh, my father starts traveling because at that time he was one of the four or five big winemakers of the Italian wine renaissance after the war. So people wanted to, you know, shake hands to Antonio. So he started also traveling both in Italy and abroad for big uh, press events and so on. Then uh, they start repositioning the big wines from Irpinia, starting from Taurasi. Right. Before the whites, it was a red issue. Right. And so Taurasi with the beautiful vintages that are 58, then 61, and then of course the 68, that was the legend, but the 58, 61, they start recovering the positions in the market, uh, the most important market, the, the most uh, powerful markets of the, those times. Can you talk about the 68 vintage? Because that's really what changed everything. That was really the renaissance where nobody could anymore say that, okay, that's a has-been brand or that's some, you know, smaller. I mean, the 68 was legendary. So can you talk about that? Yeah, 68 was a turning point. It was, uh, I think, the moment of full re-legitimation of the family brand worldwide, but also was the peak of the professional uh, effort of my father, Antonio. Uh, with the 68, uh, he also gave to Italian wine movement uh, a perspective. In 68, uh, he, he realized that the, the, the vintage was absolutely outstanding, and then uh, he decided to produce, uh, apart from the uh, regular Taurasi for the vintage, and uh, together with the reserve of Taurasi, he decided to produce some sottozone, subzones of the region. That is uh, a concept of the crew in the French style. In 1968, he produced three Taurasi reserva named Montemarano, Castelfranchi, and Piano d'Angelo. That became a huge success. They were numbered editions. So they became uh, immediately a collector's issue. And still now they are uh, extremely, you know, researched. Thousands of dollars. I looked it up. It's like $1,200 U.S. for a bottle. This is one of the great wines of Italy by everybody's standards, or three of the great wines of Italy, I should say, by anybody's standards. It's absolutely legendary. And it's a wine that is still very young because... Taurasi has a potential of aging that is about at least one century in the big vintages. Even today, we are tasting our bottles from the 20s, the 30s, or the 40s, and they are still very fresh. The potential of 68 is all there, and it's still very young when you open a bottle of the 68. So it's not just a monument. It's something that you can really enjoy, and it stays there to testify the grandeur of this uh, harvest. It's amazing. So I want to know, there was a period of time where especially British writers, and I think Nicholas Belfarge in his book about Tuscany really brings this up, is that there's always some negativity about Italian wine. It's always like, well, it's good, but it's just not 
great. And then you see stuff about French wine and it's like, and they always, they do it a little bit with Spanish wine, except Rioja. They'll do it a little bit with, definitely with Portuguese wine, but it's always German. And it's funny because Germany was also on the losing side, but German and French wine are always really elevated. And then you have Italian wine where, okay, well, it's fine. It's good. Except Barolo and Barbaresco, which were part of France at one point. So was it American writers? Was it British writers? Who were the first to say, we need to start focusing back on Southern Italy. You have to be careful because you're obviously reviewed by these people, but... <laughs> Probably a, the real turning point has been in 1980 with Hugh Johnson. Hugh Johnson, uh, not only in the Atlas of Wines, but also in the history of the wines of the world, he dedicates um, a chapter to my father yep. that is entitled The Archaeologist of Grape and Wine. Yeah, he is the one that starts turning the page Right. on the perception of the qu high quality of Italian wine production as a whole. Even if uh, it was not like today. Today in Italy, we've got so many beautiful wines in each and every region. At that time, we had dedicated regions, and Campania was one of them, that were able to produce prestigious and uh, high quality wines. And so he was able to identify each of those regions and to focus on the main producers that were not so many as today. He did a great job, and I think he really deserves this mention because from there, we got a change of speed and approach to understanding yep. more and more about Italian unusual grapes. And he was a gardener. I mean, he wrote books on gardening, so I, it would make sense that, of course, he'd be interested in these native grapes that he's a special writer because he's not just only about wine, but also about horticulture and gardening and things like that. So that makes a lot of sense that that would be the turning point. Can you talk about 1980, though, which was a tough <laughs> yeah. year? Yes, but as always happens, in the very bad situation, you always can catch opportunities. Right. Uh, if you're able to, to see them, this is what happened here, because in 1980, we had this terrible earthquake. Uh, it was uh, November 23. And we were in the middle of the fermentation of Artaurasi. <sighs> the earthquake was very bad. We had about 3,000 people killed in the area of Irpinia. So in really in our small piece of land. And uh, the city was hardly damaged. And many villages around here were completely destroyed. The cellars were not destroyed, uh, but we had many damages uh, in the family house that is over the cellars. So right. we had to cut and to recover with, with new ceilings the cellars. So we had five days uh, in which there was no control on the fermentation of Taurasi. And in the period, if you have the chance to find a bottle of the Taurasi Reserve 1980, it's such a fascinating wine. It's so wild. And uh, <laughs> every time I open a bottle of uh, the 1980, it's such a different experience of tasting, really. But then uh, 1980 is a turning point because my father, in the beginning of 1981, starts a new project that he calls Radici, meaning mm -hmm. roots. And the name Radici comes from the fact that he wanted to say, these are the roots of the family. And nothing can change our approach. Nothing can change our point of view on these issues. And so Radici as a project of viticulture starts in 1981. The first bottle of Radici Taurasi is released with the Harvest 86. And it's another revolution for uh, Italian wines because now Radici is one of the 
symbol uh, labels of Italian wine movement uh, worldwide again. Yep. So this is another another turning point of his career, of his life. Radici is really something that he thought completely and that he managed completely up to the huge success that it still has today. Because it's still our most celebrated wine. Absolutely. The other thing that happened in 1980 is that after the earthquake happened, then there was money from the Italian government and from the EU. So more producers started. If you look at the trajectory of so many, almost everybody I visited except you started in the 1980s. So their families started. Did your father help mentor some of these younger people who just said, well, I grow, but should I start a winery? Was he helping with that or was he just concentrating on his own stuff? No, 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 no. We have always been here in this winery. We've had so many young producers coming to get suggestion on the approach to the business. Now it's a little less because there are too many and also... The Italian wine movement uh, is made of a lot of communication. Many people can get information from anywhere. So it's a little different. But at that time, they really needed to have uh, somebody who had uh, a view of the production and the market to get a kind of direction uh, for their investments. After 1980, we have a huge amount of money coming from the government, from Italian government, to rebuild the area. The money coming from uh, the EU for the viticultural restructuring comes in the, mainly in the 90s. So in the 90s, we have a huge amount of uh, newcomers in this business, uh, even in this region. And uh, now I think that we have about 200 uh, producers probably. Wow. They, are main, <laughs> they are mainly local yeah. mean for domestic markets, for sure. But uh, we have at least 15 or 20 of them that are seeable on foreign markets. Yeah, so. and it's great to see Campania out there, to see Irpinia out there. I want to talk about you because you are a really interesting person, my friend. With what you just said about being close to your father, and this is your 10th generation, yes. But you are also a professor of business management at the University of Foggia. You teach, you research, you write on international management. You've written novels and poetry books, and you have exhibited your art in Italy and abroad. How do you do all of this? And then, of course, the second question I have, because I love business school professors, do you use any of your stuff from the winery in your classroom? Do you ever use your case studies or vice versa? Do you use any of the management techniques that you teach in the winery? Well, first of all, art is a passion. My father was a lover of many different art expressions. And we've got an art gallery that is property of the family. It's a part of our patrimony. So it can be visited by, you know, the wine lovers. When they come to the winery, they also can visit our collection. Yeah. Uh, so art has been always been part of my life. And uh, I started uh, painting uh, when I was five. Wow. So this was something that my first exhibition was when I was five in the oh, primary yes. school. <laughs> so it's, it's a passion, yeah. And uh, also I love to write short novels, but I never published them. Then Later on, I decided to publish some novels and uh, also some collections of uh, short poems. And so it's something that is relaxing. It's not really a job. You have time to do all of this. You're running like a major business. You have a full teaching schedule. You're a professor. I don't even know how you have time. You must have so much energy. 
the passion for science and research became a profession. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that I do on a regular basis. While the art production is something that I do when I feel to do it and um, I can spend even years without doing any sketch. Yeah, uh, I got some labels that are my personal sketches, my personal production, but it's not made under pressure. It's right. just uh, relax. It's joy. Coming to the junction between the two professional experiences, one in the wine family business and the other in uh, education. On each side, I use the expertise coming from the other side. So when I'm in the classroom, I try to use a very pragmatic language in order to get the students in touch more and more with the real decision-making process that happens in a, a social organization. Right. So to give them the empirical evidence and instruments to approach the life that they will have to face after graduation. And when I started my experience at Winery in 1990, the first big innovation was to open the board of directors of the family company to managers, non-family managers. Right. So since the beginning, I made some changes. big changes. My yeah. father was a little scared. I can, and, I can uh, understand that. He had been through <laughs> a lot. I think a lot of people probably didn't understand the business and the fact that it was so international. I think it's hard to find people that understand the wine business who are not in the wine business because we have so many different things from regular business. We're an agriculture business and we get one shot a year to do what you do. And who else has that? No one else except other farming businesses. But then it's also a luxury product. I think it's very, very complicated. I can understand why you'd be hesitant because because some of the ideas were probably like, no, we can't do that because of whatever. But if you get the right people, it can be great. In the management of uh, in wine business, there are some very unusual situations. Yes. One is the fact that uh, stock increases its value. If you are able to manage properly production, you will have a huge reserve of money in the future if you are able to invest in inventory. And this means that you have to think of you know, the allocation of resources in order to get that stock for a long time. Right. We still have in our family cavo bottles that cover a library of one century of vintages of this family. And another issue is the fact that being the biggest part of our investments focused on uh, viticulture, that, is, that means land, Right. land is a very tough immobilization of money and uh, doesn't bring money back easily. So for the financial side, this is uh, something that really creates problem in approaching the regular way of thinking of the institutional financial people. And so this is another thing that you have to be able to manage, you know, to get value. Okay, I hope you are loving the show. Obviously, I'm fangirling out a little bit in the show because I am so in love with Campania and the Mastroberdino family is so important and Piero is super interesting. So all of this stuff. Okay, done with the superlatives. Let's talk about our sponsors this week. We'll talk about Wine Access, where sometimes you can score fantastic Tarazzi and other wines of Campania and Italy and wines from all over the globe, which is where their team sources from 
Wine Access is called Wine Access because it gives you access to wines you can't find anywhere else. If you go to wineaccesswineacces.com slash WFMP, you'll see the wines that I'm drinking right now. If you go to wineaccess.com slash normal, you can join the wine club that I have with Wine Access. We just did a shipment of the wines of Italy that sort of go over my trip to Tuscany and Piedmont, which I'll be doing in the fall. I also do the videos and I write a note about why I chose all of these individual wines. Look, some of the wines that I've had from Wine Access are small producers that they seek out. For instance, in the Italy pack, we had a wine from San Filippo, which then the patrons and I visited in Tuscany, a Rosa di Montalcino, and it opened the door for us to go there and try some of the best Brunellos I have ever had. Go on their site and shop and you'll just see, wow, I've never seen a wine from there before. Let me add it to my cart. And then you've got a month to get to that $150 threshold for free shipping. Get on it today, wineaccess.com slash WFMP or wineaccess.com slash normal for the wine club. You get 10% off your first order. So do it today. Also, I've mentioned many times before, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Wine for Normal People is how you get to join the community. I just had a note from somebody saying, hey, I wish that there was more coverage on your trip to Italy. Well, guess where it all is? It's all on Patreon. So for as little as $21.60 a year, if you join for the year, $2 a month US, you can get access to the community and you can see all of these amazing posts, plus extended show notes if you join at a little bit of a higher level. These are all the details that you may have missed while listening to the show. Hangouts, mini classes. We just did a mini class on Fiano. These are things that you'll get if you're a patron. And also you will get to know that you're helping keep the podcast alive with the other 4% of listeners who donate. So thank you so much. If you're interested in learning more about wines in a really fun and very dorky way, you can go to winefornormalpeople.com slash classes on my new website. You've got to check it out today. Wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes. Now let's get back to this amazing show with Piero Mastro-Borodino. I do want to move on to the research thing. You're talking about science and research. And a lot of the things that you have done since you started when you took over in the 90s is all research-based. And Stilema is one of those projects. Your father was worried about varietal purity, right? About genetic material. And so you have done a ton of research on prephylloxera vines and changing the work in the vineyards and vinification, doing these yeast strains that are just yours. Was your father's concern valid? Yes, the the outcome of the research on prephylloxera clones is unbelievable. We are bringing back some of the characters of our ancient grapes, and some of these characters were diluted during the decades due to the nursery investments that were dedicated mainly to a higher yield from the clones, because the request from the viticulturers was to have a little more weight in their production. But this is exactly the opposite of what we need. And so we had to make our own clonal selection in order to get to the right ones. And this project was extremely successful for us. And the most important clone of Aglianico that came from this research was dedicated to my father again. So it it bears my father's name. It's an Aglianico Antonio Mastro Berardino 421 that was registered through the Italian government, Italian Ministry of Agriculture some years ago. 
and it's now a reality. And this is for me extremely important. Stilema project, in my opinion, can be what has been Radici for my father. Right. Stilema can be for my professional life. Is a turning point, is a very ambitious project of research concerning the three most important appellations, the OCG of Irpinia, Piano di Avellino, Greco di Tufo, and Taurasi. I started it with the harvest 2015. My father passed away in 2014. Mm -hmm. So the idea comes right after his death. And uh, I try to refocus on the big changes of approach to viticulture and winemaking of uh, my father in the previous 50 years. And I focused for the whites on the style of Piano di Avellino and Greco di Tufo from the 70s. Uh, Piano di Avellino and Greco di Tufo are beautiful whites that can be aged for a very long time. Yes. But you have to think of this character when you train the vines. Yeah. And if you think, starting from that point up to the end of the process of refining in the cellar, you will have a wine that can be dedicated to the 50-year aging time. That is exactly what these wines deserve. Because right. uh, the possibility of evolution that we have in Fiano and Greco is really amazing. So we are now focusing the current vintage of Fiano di Avellino and Greco di Tufo Stilema is 18. So they are released five years from the harvest, almost five years, and they got 24 months on the lease, they got a mallow, they got a very long period of refining, and then the release on the market, they're very unusual. They are the best wines I have. I told you that Tarazi is one of the best wines I have ever had in my entire life. I've never tasted anything like that. I still can't find, I can't find the 2016 that you gave me anywhere, but I bought a couple bottles of the 2015. If that's where we're going with the clones of these grapes, then you're going to blow the doors off of anybody else that makes wine. Their flavors are nothing like anything you'll ever taste. You isolated the yeasts for these wines also. So these are coming right from the vineyards. You took the the strains and then, and that is something I think more people are doing. I've been hearing more people doing that. It's really the best way to do it is if you have good terroir. If you don't have good terroir, then it's probably not a good idea. But On the Stilema Taurasi, the approach is with the whites. The technique brings these wines to opulence, to this uh, nice creamy white width uh, of character. Uh, on Taurasi, the Stilema project has a completely different approach, bringing back to life, the style of the Taurasis of the 50s and 60s that we discussed before. Yeah. The approach was very elegant, refined, and agile. So the Taurasis dilemma is different from Radici and from Naturalis Historia because it has this uh, beautiful finesse. Uh, it has this very essential style, a little exotic nose. The fruit is there, but it's a different fruit from yes. the one that you got with the, with the Radici with a little higher concentration, with a little longer maceration. Yeah, you've got lower temperature and maceration, a shorter period of maceration with the red stems in. And I mean, it's a very complicated process. It's extremely fascinating, (laughs) fascinating because it's a kind of revolution even for Taurasi. It's another huge change. But again, it's uh, 
Is it modern or is it the classical? <laughs> this I don't, is what, the question. <laughs> whatever it is, I just want more of it. That's all I can say. But I think it's interesting because Fiano sometimes doesn't go through mallow. So you're saying you do, Greco can go through because it's a little bit higher in acidity, but the Fiano goes through mallow, but it doesn't feel heavy at all because malolactic can sometimes really weigh it down. In Irpina, we still have a huge acidity in all of our grapes. This keeps this freshness, this vibrancy, even after this kind of processes. So the wines are always vibrant, are always like a violin chord, as I usually say. And this is what I love in these wines. And also we are very high in elevation with our vineyards. We go up to 650 meters, sometimes 700 meters of elevation with these vineyards. So this helps a lot to get this kind of fresh character. Let's get into Irpinio. So if people don't know what the area is like, can you just give a brief overview? You've already just talked about the elevation. You have a mountain continental climate, but the other thing that is so unique is the biodiversity. There's not just a big flat area of vines. It's all mixed in with other things. It's amazing to me that you never took out all the trees. You never took out the bushes. You know, Now, I would assume that your steps to sustainability, although there are some challenges because you are a very rainy climate, but you are doing the things that now everybody is going back to. Talk about the terroir. First of all, the vegetation in the area is protected. You have to respect the trees and the, and the woods that are almost everywhere in Irpinia and that are the real character of this land. So this yep. land is, when you get into Irpinia from uh, the highway, from the coast, you really have the feeling of breath because you've got all this uh, dark green all around and high mountains all around. And then you get into, and then you see the vineyard when you go through the dedicated areas. But as you said, uh, the environment has not completely changed due to the viticulture success. It, everything is still there and is well protected. Sustainability is a good issue to discuss. Uh, as you said, uh, we are in a very cold and very rainy region. Which and, people uh, would we... not expect given if you look at the map of Italy and you think, yeah. well, Rome is really hot in the summertime. Naples is really hot in the summertime. No, that is not what we're talking about here. When you take that turn, that, that was one of the really amazing things. The road forks, you can go to Naples or you can go to, you can go to Napoli or you can go into Irpinia. Things change dramatically. I mean, they change yeah. actually, even when you go from Lazio into Campania, you see all of a sudden there's mountains and there's, you know, you're in someplace different, you know, automatically. But that turn, you're all of a sudden in an Alpine area, basically. It's just a very different thing. And I think people need to hear from you. This is not... It's not Southern Italy. It's sort of like Northern Italy dropped into Southern Italy, right? Well, uh, it's Southern Italy because uh, Northern Italy is suffering more. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, the the temperatures are going up much more in other latitudes of the country. In Irpinia, at this latitude, we are the coldest area. We got snow for many months during the year. We got a lot of rain the whole year. (laughs) Almost every day, even now, is raining. And um, we are the last wine region to harvest compared to any other parts of Italy. We start harvesting uh, Greco and Fiano, the whites, in mid-October. 
and we finished the harvest of Aglianico for Taurasi on November 10, on the average. So, so this is really quite late. unusual. Yeah, it's a little risky as well sometimes, but it's the character of these wines. Mm -hmm. So we prefer to have a long period of maturation, very slow, to get the complexity on the plants and to get what we expect in the glass. And so Irpinia is really unusual. Currently, we have been the first winery to get the sustainability certification from Italian Ministry of Environment. And this certification is important because it's not focused on an option, organic or something else. But it puts every protocol together in the same cockpit and you can make your own choice. So we have one estate that is organic, another that is made with another approach and another approach. And then at the end, our effort is to reduce our impact on environment on a total right. evaluation scheme. So this is, in my opinion, a correct approach because you don't do it um, as a religious choice, <laughs> but you do it rationally. Natural wine and organic and biodynamic are not necessarily natural wine. They're, those are farming techniques versus production techniques. And it has become this religion and this war against conventional production. But for those people who are in places that have a lot of rain to try to do organics in a vineyard where you just can't do it. it. The fact that it's become this sort of, you know, oh, you have to do it this way or else it's, it actually could be worse, not just for the land, but for the wine. But I mean, especially for the land. And I think there's, there needs to be a bit of uh, explanation about that. People just hear these buzzwords and they think, okay, biodynamic is good. Organic is good. Sustainability is, is bad. Yes. There's a lot of bullshit, excuse me, what, yeah. on sustainability. There's a lot of faking about that. But the EU has done a very good job of making sure that is not acceptable anymore. They have stopped a lot of that greenwashing. To be sincere, I think that even EU is doing damages on these issues because they are trying to put money in the organic if you reach an 80%, let's say, of the production is organic. And this is stupid because, again... They are not focusing enough on what we said. Well, the fact that the, the climate, uh, the weather evolution, uh, of course, is part of uh, the choices. And so you cannot just say this protocol is better than that. No. We are still in the middle. I know that U.S. can be a little, can be perceived as a, a little more religious in the approach, but uh, EU is not really much better. Okay. Well, that's that's <laughs> good that's good to clarify. I would love to talk about the wines in particular. Can you talk about the three is it three or four tiers of wines that you make so that when people are looking for the Mastro Borodinos, they know the difference between Radici and Stilema? Can you just talk about that and then we'll talk about the grapes and the DOCGs? In our uh, range of wines, uh, we've got uh, a layer that we call the Family Cruise mm -hmm. that was born uh, in late 70s uh, after the experience of the late 68 with Taurasi. My father stopped for a while that project of the cruise and then in late 70s it started again when he had the chance to having some more money available to do some specific investments, he tried to make verticalization in terms of announcement of the characters of the most important locations for right. each appellation. 
So we decided in the family estates to focus on one particular location for Greco, one particular site for Fiano, one particular site for Taurasi, and decided to produce the family crew. Radici started as a project, Nova Serra started as a project for Greco di Tufo. So we've got this layer in which uh, there is uh, the focus in vertical, in depth, of a character of a specific soil. That was a change of approach because in the 60s, uh, the success of the appellations came from a blend of different characters of different microenvironments composing the puzzle of an appellation. After this experience of the cruise, we made other crews in the other decades after the 70s. So we've got then More Maiorum, that was born in 90s. In 90s, Naturalis Historia was born as well. It's a delicious wine. Yeah, they were all successful. Yeah. And uh, they are all based on the view of the family crews. Yeah. With Stilema Project, I'm going back to the 60s because Stilema is not anymore a wine that is produced from a single vineyard, but uh, is again a contribution of uh, different characters of different soils. And this is also fascinating for me because you can get the verticality, the minerality of Montefusco soils for a Greco di Tufo, but also the sulfur contribution of Tufo and Petruro area. And so this is nice. In, in Stilema, you find these different characters. Together. You are doing well. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> you, listeners, trust me. You need to get these wines. So what we call the icon level of our production is made of the Stilema project, is made of Naturalis Historia, More Maiorum, and uh, the Radici wines. While in the crew line, uh, we put the Nova Serra for Greco di Tufo. We put uh, a Fiano di Avellino that is called Radici as well, that was born also in the uh, beginning of 1980. All the, these wines are the backbone of uh, our uh, family brand. For people listening to this, these are wines that are available. I mean, you have to go to fine wine shops to get them, but they're not going to be things that are so obscure. Stilema is going to be harder to find, but they're not so obscure that you can't find them. Can we talk about our favorite white? I know Massimo doesn't like us for saying this, but we can say Massimo is the enologist. Can we talk about Fiano, please? And and can you tell us about the grape and also the appellation? Because one of the things that people probably don't know is exactly what you're talking about. Within all the three DOCGs in Irpinia, you have really diverse choices. I think it must be hard to decide what you want to do with it because you can get really fat styles of Fiano. You can get very lean styles of Fiano. Greco can be, like you said, it can be very sulfurous. It can be very minerally. So can you give us an overview of these three really important appellations and some of the variation that we can experience? I think that a big part is made of the interpretation and creativity of the viticulture and the winemaker. The area is not homogeneous. In each of the three appellations, Fiano di Avellino, Greco di Tufo, and Taurasi, you can have different characteristics of the environment that and the soils as well, and the elevation. Of course, they influence the character of the grapes, but also the way of thinking of the winemaker can make a very relevant difference. So talking about Fiano, we got some parts of the area that are very high and mountain and cold and with a lot of stones in the soil. So you've got this beautiful uh, wet rock 
you know, character yeah. that I love in Fiano. And uh, as you said, as we discussed on Greco, you can have different sites that have many relevant differences coming from the soil again. Greco usually has more clay, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you read these, you study for these exams, they would say Campania, well, it's tufo. It's volcanic, totally volcanic. It's just not true. So it's <laughs> there are writers who write these things about Campania and then you go, and about a lot of other places too, you go and you're like, no, that's not right. That's not actually right. There's not volcanic soil everywhere. But anyway, sorry, yeah. continue. No, 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 you, you are totally right. We got a layer of ash that is almost everywhere in the region, but it's a layer. While the volcanic soil is the one that you see dark in on the surface and it's very sandy and it's much different from the clay that we got in many parts of our region. Even in uh, Taurasi Appalachian, we got a lot of clay, as you said. And then also we have to consider that these Appalachians are in the middle of the mountains. You got some parts of the Taurasi area that are uh, very mountain style. So very hard with high elevation, where very, very, very steep slopes. This is the southern part of Taurasi. If you go to the northern part of Taurasi, it's much more open, very hilly and very delicate hills in the, in the Tuscan style. Right. And so in that case, you've got a little higher average temperature. The maturation is a little different. You usually harvest there one week earlier than the, the southern part of Taurasi area. And there can be relevant differences also in the roundness and softness uh, in the character of the wines. It's not really the same to have a property in the northern part or in the southern part of the region. It's completely different. That's why I say it's a matter of style and it's a matter of interpretation. We must do it. We must present a variety of these uh, appellations in order to make people become more and more aware of the real potential of the area. Otherwise, we won't do our business properly. People just say, okay, well, it's Fiano. I will say, because again, you're another Fiano lover. There really isn't a style of Fiano that I don't love because I think that the grape is really great. But I won't say that about Greco. There's a lot more Greco made than Fiano. I'm not sure how this came about that people became obsessed with Greco and not Fiano, because I think Fiano is a style that more people would like. There, there's, a, there's a reason. There's a reason. My father, in the late 40s, the production of Fiano was almost destroyed. So it was much harder to bring Fiano back to a good oh. amount of production. So in the 60s and 70s, and also when I was a, was a kid in the late 70s, the price of a bottle of Fiano was twice a Greco. Ah, okay. So the positioning of Fiano has been uh, in the past much more exclusive. This, of course, made a difference in terms of perception on the market. Currently, they are more or less in the same price segment, but till now, Greco remained as a more, in the mind of the consumer, more approachable wine. Even if Greco has a structure that is more similar to a red wine than a white wine, Fiano is a more elegant and a little refined. The Greco is a full power. I think of Fiano as being so mouth-coating and so satisfying in the same way that a red wine would be. It, it completes everything. It's it's very silky. The acidity is a little bit lower, so it's like drinking silk sometimes. Greco, to me, is a little more acidic, a little more minerally. It reminds me more of a Chablis, where you have these more acidic notes and Fiano is, if you put it in a black glass, I think you would think that it might be 
a red wine because it's so luxurious. I mean, it's it's like this. I don't know. I obviously, you know, I love Fiano. I do love Greco also, but like I said, it's so variable. Tarazi is also can be very variable because the things that I love in a Tarazi are those exotic notes that most of your Tarazis have. The fact that it has black pepper or it has something else besides just fruit and tannin. And I think that some people struggle with that when they make Tarazi, which is unfortunate because it's also very expensive. So if you get a bottle where the producer is not either sourcing from the correct place, it can be boring if it's not made in the correct way. I don't know if you agree with that. I'm sure you try you try others. Yeah, Tarazi is uh, quite a wild beast uh, to handle with. Uh, been uh, considered that our uh, younger Taurasi on the market is the 2018 that has been just uh, released. And for the Reserva, we are now distributing the 16 harvest. Wow. So seven years of seller before the release. And this is quite a big challenge for the younger producers, for the newcomers, because it's difficult to metabolize the idea of bringing your most important wine, seven years in the cellar before the release. They don't want to do it. Uh, they try to put a, a Taurasi on the market when it's younger and probably it's not the best choice to make uh, for the consumer side, but it happens. And so sometimes you can find Taurasis on the market that are a little less balanced. With Taurasi, I think that uh, you have to consider the opportunities that you can get from an investment properly made in the vineyard and in the cellar, and you have to be patient. Even yes. for Fiano and Greco, it's better to wait. All of our whites uh, gain a lot with a little more refining in the bottle. The consumer has to understand that all of these wines deserve to wait a little bit more than the average of other wines uh, in order to get all the characters. Yeah. yeah, buy and hold hold all these. I'll tell you, I mean, some of the aged Fianos and Grecos are just, they bring you things that are so surprising and unbelievable. What about Falangina? So I teach a class on the wines of Italy. It's an overview. I always include Campania because I think that it is one of the most important regions in Italy. We do five regions and Campania is always there. And I always tell people get a Fiano or Greco, but most of the time in certain markets, they can only find Falangina. Is this a direct result of the fact that it grows more easily and that it was more available or what is it about Falangina? It yeah. seems to be the most common wine from Campania that's out there. And I don't just mean Irpinia. I mean, you see it from Sanyo, you see it from Vesuvio, it's everywhere. It doesn't give a great impression a lot of times of what else is here. This is the result of the volumes produced. Because okay. Falangina is the widest production that we have in the region. Yep. Uh, Falangina sometimes is also a very high yield character. And this brings to that result because many Falangina on the market are very easy drinking wines, but probably you won't remember them because the approach of the winemaker is one of producing an everyday wine. We have a Falangina that is a single vineyard, the crew in Irpinia. It's an Irpinia DOC that is called Mora Bianca. That is an, a project that we started uh, during 2000s. It was a change of approach to viticultural Falangina with the density of plantation much higher than the average uh, of Falangina in Sannio, uh, the one that we use for Fiano and Greco, in the area of Taurasi, so with a 
very nice and tough soil. Right. Of, uh, maybe for a give it a little wine. more. Give it more power because it's with a very low yield. Uh, that is about one fourth of the average of the area of Sanio. And at the end, you got a very interesting big wine with a beautiful uh, expression, but with a very nice balance with this beautiful citrus nose that is extremely elegant. And not only tropical nuances and more banal fruit expression. So it becomes a very interesting wine and it's very successful also for us. So Falangina can be interesting. Probably it doesn't have the aging potential of a Fiano Greco. We see that in the long run, Falangina has a, a little less to say compared to Fiano and Greco evolution. But in the first eight to 10 years, it's a very, very interesting wine as well. So it's a third white grape for the region, but it could get a better reputation if all the producers respect the grape and the training system. I think that it's like a Pinot Grigio substitute right now, which is not a great place for it to be. All right. Last subject. You've been so, so generous with your time. Vesuvio. Um, You have always produced it for a really long time. You've made wines in Vesuvio. And it's such a different area and it's kind of far away and the terroir is completely different. The grapes are different. You have Lacrima Christi and these are whites of Cota di Volpe and reds of Piri Rosso. And these are totally different grapes that if people don't know Fiano, Greco and Alianico, they really don't know Piri Rosso and Cota di Volpe. Do you think that these wines have a little bit more potential? There are a bunch of producers in Vesuvio, but I don't know any of them. I know your wines and other producers from Irpinia who are making the wines of Vesuvio. What's the situation down there? Is anything happening? What's your impression of Piduroso and Cote di Volpe as grapes? Do they have any potential? I mean, I think Piduroso is a really lovely, like, everyday wine. Yes. Things are improving in Vesuvio area, and there are more producers that are dedicating a force in, in giving. The problem is the value, average value of the bottles from the Lacrima Cristina Vesuvio appellation. And this comes from the fact that we are on the coast with a lower elevation. That's completely volcanic soil, so yeah. a very black and sandy soil. The wines are very pleasant, but you don't have the acidity that we have on the mountains. You don't have the big character of the wines coming from the cold weather. You've got a, this beautiful pleasantness, uh, roundness, softness, uh, and of course, versatility, because Piedirosso doesn't have the tanning content of uh, Arianico. So... On one side, this is a limit. On the other hand, is an option because you can pair Lacrima Gisela del Vesuvio Rosso with a pizza. Right. And it's difficult to put an Ayanico on, on several pizza dressings. They are versatile, they are very pleasant, but they are not really ageable as the wines from the mountains. So the value of the bottle stays lower. And the perception uh, at the end is one of a uh, very pleasant but everyday wine so it makes sense what you said uh, you know is yeah. is true it's true because uh, you cannot enjoy a lacrima gris del vesuvio red after 30 years people love the name though they yeah, love the story yeah, what is the actual story do you know what the actual is it do we know yeah, what the, the actual of, story yeah. is of lacrima Christi? The legend of lucifer escaping from, uh, from okay, heaven so you, you, and, and... you take the lucifer one 
Some people yeah, say yeah, it was yeah. Christ ascending to heaven, crying at the Bay of Naples and how beautiful it was. I've read that one too. Yeah, it's the same. It's the oh, same. Oh, it is the same. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God cried, uh, looking at Lucifer, stealing this piece of heaven and these tears in the Bay of Naples and the vines came up. So this is the legend. And for us, it's always been a part of our family, Vesuvio. We've been producing it uh, since 1800s, and uh, we have had, uh, always had a very strong presence in that region. But the appellation, Lacrima Christi del Vesuvio, was probably the most prestigious appellation all over Italy in the 1700s and 1800s. Uh, 1700s considered that Voltaire good described Lacrima Christi del Vesuvio in their writings because they used to come to Napoli area because in that period, after the Borboni evolution of the reign of Napoli, all these cultural people from Europe used to come to understand what was happening down there. And so there is a huge amount of writings from these big men of culture of Europe who describe Lacrima Christi del Vesuvio as the great wine of Campania in 1700s. Yeah. He could have just gone a little bit further inland and discovered something a lot better. So I think that's <laughs> that's true. So I guess the message that we have is these wines are lovely for every day. They're great pizza wines for sure. And actually the white, Cota de Volpe is good with white pizza, pizza Bianca. But also the red with the beautiful mozzarella di bufala is great. Ooh, yes. The last question I have for you is why do you think that Campania isn't more famous? Mastro Baradino is very famous, but why do you think that Campania and Irpinia aren't more famous? And is there a future plan or is there a future work towards making people understand? Obviously, like I'm doing my best. I mean, I'm drinking every single wine you make and I'm telling everybody about your wines, but what else can we do or what else is going on to make these wines really very prominent beyond just Tarazi? Because people do know Tarazi as one of the greats. And what's the situation with people not knowing enough about Irpinia? As you said before, after World War II, we just had one winery, one family business in the wine of Irpinia that was mine, my family business. And uh, for a very long time, we didn't have uh, other producers investing in viticulture in the region. Consider that this year we celebrated 30 years of the DOCG Taurasi. Right. And so uh, it was in 1993 we got the DOCG that covered the 92 vintage on. And uh, when in 92 the project of uh, bringing Taurasi from the DOC to the DOCG started, there were only two producers of Taurasi, oh Mastro Berardino and Struzier, another small company that still exists, but has uh, a more uh, domestic distribution. So we were the only one that was able to, to the evidence of the international distribution of this wine. And we had to produce all the invoices distributed all over the world of this wine in order to go through the government process to get the appellation of the DOCG. It was 1992, so quite recent. Just one company selling these wines all over the world. Got it. So when you say Campania is not uh, that popular, uh, it's just because the wine movement started much later than other regions. That's the problem, in my opinion. We are still (laughs) in the middle of the process. We are still doing this uh, because till today, we got the new producers that are still in the process of building up a library of their vintages 
that is necessary to get a reputation on the market. Not everybody has the money or the time. Roberto Di Meo, who you know, I mean, he's aging his fianos for 20 years, but he's been around a long time, so he can do that, yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's one of the oldest. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, he's he's fantastic. That's a very rare circumstance, it sounds like. Well, that's actually really exciting, isn't it, though, that there's this big future in front of you that although you are the face of the region, there's no doubt about it. Feodi di San Gregorio also is very important for marketing the region. But I think that it is so very important that all of these younger producers are getting excited and that we can get them out there too, so that people can enjoy the glory of the region. Now you also have, I want to give a plug for, you have a resort. So if people want to come visit, they can come and have a beautiful time also in the mountains. It's not too hot. You're around vineyards. It's your marquee estate. There's a spa there. So if you're interested in visiting Campania, consider going to this estate because it really is quite amazing. I want to stay there next time I come. Again, when when I started this investment in, in wine tourism and made this resort, Radici Resort, uh, there was nothing in the area for welcoming people that used to come to the winery to taste these wines from all over the world. And uh, uh, being our uh, customers, uh, they were in the high-end restaurants of the world. Right. So we needed to have you know something like that in order to give the right presentation of the region. So as we didn't have anything like that, we had to invest <laughs> directly from the family. You had to make and it then, yourself. Now, now it's improving. Now we've got many restaurants uh, but uh, in our resort, we got two different restaurants. One is a fine dining and the other is an osteria. And we try to present the, the variety of expression of the cuisine of uh, the mountains of Campania. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It is such an honor. In my book, you are the biggest celebrity in Italy. I think you're so important. Your family has done so much. And I remember reading your family story for the first time, I think I got tears in my eyes just thinking about how dedicated you would have to be to keep these grapes of antiquity going when everyone else didn't want to do it. It is people like you and your family who keep that idea of cultural continuity and the fact that Italy is so so important in wine history, and we should never forget that. So thank you for everything that you have done. I love that you have taken such an intellectual approach to the company. I think everything has benefited from that just because you're such a brilliant person. I can't wait to see mm -hmm. you again when I come visit again, because I will definitely be back. Thank you for having me and thank you for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for being so precise and deep in understanding and, and communicating the values of this land. And uh, I'm confident that will be a great contribution to improve and increase the awareness of the values of the region. Absolutely. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Thank you.